Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, to today's program. This is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the uncertain path from agreement to ratification to implementation. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, so thank you again for coming. Carl uh, von Clausewitz once wrote, although our intellect always longs for clarity and certainty, our nature often finds uncertainty fascinating. So it's hard to imagine anything more uncertain than the status of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the first such agreement of this 114th Congress. But it has indeed been fascinating. This summer, Trade Promotion Authority, or TPA, was once again restored to the President. For over 30 years, TPA has been used to give Congress a means of developing and overseeing trade policy. Contrary to critics, the TPA is not an abrogation of congressional power to the executive branch, though in other spheres, much of that has indeed occurred, and with terrible consequences. Instead, TPA, a congressional creation, establishes terms, conditions, and procedures under which the administration processes trade agreements. If anything, it gives Congress considerable control over the process and the ability to significantly shape the contours of the agreement. For once that deal is concluded, and after various review periods where Congress can evaluate the agreement, a simple, unamendable, up-or-down vote occurs. If in the measure the requirements are satisfactorily fulfilled, then passage becomes very likely. If not, it's back to negotiations. After a long, hard-fought battle to get the TPA rules finally in place, it appears that to many, these hard objectives may not have been adequately met. So to say these deals are complicated is an understatement of the highest order. TPP is a 12-nation deal covering the full spectrum of trade in goods, services, and investment. By extension, it involves labor, environmental rules, intellectual property rules, and much more. Scrutiny has been intense, and there are incalculable numbers of parties who have either much to lose or much to gain with each actor, looking to expand on its strengths and defend its weaknesses. In the impossible event that it passed today, it will have been nearly an eight-year process to come to terms. Meanwhile, on our own domestic front, we are entering a particularly rhetoric-rich environment of a presidential election where charismatics with a platitude problem can hold great sway. How, this will, uh, how will this delicately crafted, long-negotiated TPP perform in such a stormy environment? What really are its chances for passage? So to explore all this at some length, I've asked my Cato colleagues to come and give a status update and to report on what they think the next few months will bring. First, Dan Eikenson is the director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiple Center for Trade Policy Studies, where he coordinates and conducts research on US-China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, and institutions, globalization, US manufacturing issues, trade politics, and trade remedies. Since joining Cato in 2000, Hikinson co-authored the book Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law, and has contributed dozens of papers on various aspects of trade policy. He's testified before various congressional committees on a variety of policy matters, has appeared on numerous national television news programs and networks, and his articles have been published in widely circulated newspapers and magazines. Hikinson holds an MA in economics from George Washington University. Simon Lester is a trade policy analyst with Cato's Herbert A. Stifel Center as well. For trade policy studies, his research focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, and the history of international trade law. In 2001, Lester founded the international trade law website, worldtradelaw.net. He has written a number of law journal articles, which have appeared in such publications as the Stanford Journal of International Law, the George Washington International Law Review, and the Journal of World Trade. In addition, he has taught courses on international trade law at America University's Washington College of Law and the University of Michigan Law School. He has a JD from Harvard Law School. 
So the way this will work, uh, both will go for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to questions at around a quarter after. Um, and Dan, take it away, please. Thank you, Peter, and, and thank you all for coming. I'm pleased to see that it's a standing room only event. I think maybe the, the weather conspired and kept you guys all here so you wouldn't have to go out for lunch. So uh, do appreciate that. Um, I just want to show a brief video to provide some background on the TPP, put it in a certain context. Um, but before doing that, I just want to acknowledge, I mean, this, this year has been a pretty prominent year for, for trade policy. Uh, I've been at Cato for 15 years, and I don't recall a year prior to this one where there was just so much on the agenda. We had the TPA debate earlier this year. TPA was passed. Uh, TPP just recently concluded, allegedly. Um, we've got uh, the TTIP negotiations that are still ongoing and, um, and, and allegedly picking up momentum. And then we have the XM debate. And uh, I just want to say a word or two about that and, and then get into the TPP because it's very topical this week. As you probably all know, um, the House passed a discharge position, uh, petition on Monday, uh, put uh, XM reauthorization vote on the floor. It was supported overwhelmingly. Um, it's likely going to pass in the Senate at some point, um, perhaps this week. Um, and it's disappointing. Uh, we, we, we are opposed to the XM Bank, and, and I think we've made some pretty strong arguments for why we don't need that kind of corporate welfare. Um, but apparently, the establishment likes it. Uh, the business community likes it. They've done a good job of deflecting criticisms of the XM Bank, of, of, of deflecting concerns about costs that are imposed on other um, companies throughout the supply chain. Um, but we're just going to have to say we tried. You know, we tried to end the XM Bank for, for four months. It was uh, out of business. And we're talking about the tippity top of the iceberg here in terms of corporate welfare. And if we can't do anything about XM, uh, prospects for reining in these, these kinds of subsidies, this kind of abuse in the future, are dim. So I'm disappointed, but uh, that's what, apparently what, what, what people want. Uh, and uh, we'll have to take it from there. Uh, we've written a lot about it. Go to our site, check it out if you're still up for grabs in terms of uh, being convinced. Um, I just want to show you this video. It's three minutes and 50 seconds, and then I'll come back to you. Since 1998, Cato's trade scholars have been promoting ideas and publishing research to highlight the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. It's no secret that trade policy is fairly contentious, but to get a better understanding of why that is the case, let's go back in time to the period right after the Civil War. Between 1865 and the Great Depression, it was Democrats that supported trade liberalization. It was Democrats who favored reducing tariffs, whereas it was the Republicans who liked tariffs and they liked higher tariffs. That went on and on through the decades until 1930 when the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act was introduced and that was perhaps the most notorious trade bill of all time. It precipitated a global trade war and certainly contributed to the Great Depression. After the Second World War, a bipartisan consensus for trade liberalization emerged. In 1947, 23 countries led by the United States established the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And over the ensuing 47 years, between 1947 and 1994, there were eight successful multilateral rounds of trade liberalization. The last successful round, the Uruguay Round, created the World Trade Organization. Fissures in the bipartisan consensus for trade liberalization started to emerge in the early 1990s. There were efforts 
efforts, aborted efforts, to launch a new round. Uh, if you recall 1999, the battle in Seattle, the emergence of the anti-globalization movement, Tom Friedman of the New York Times uh, made the remark, the ill-informed and well-intentioned being led astray by the well-informed and ill-intentioned. At that point, it looked like global trade liberalization was dead. But in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, a global consensus re-emerged for trade liberalization and a new round was launched in Doha, Qatar. The Doha round was launched to great fanfare and great promise, but it stumbled along the way. And the Bush administration decided to engage in a policy of competitive liberalization, which meant it wanted to pursue bilateral agreements with other countries that were willing uh, to, to move forward. At the beginning of the Bush administration, the United States had free trade agreements with only four countries. By the end of the Bush administration, the United States had free trade agreements with 20 countries. In 2007, the Democrats took control of Congress and put an end to what they called Bush-era trade agreements. With Pelosi and Reid at the helm in Congress, U.S. trade policy shifted in emphasis from engagement and liberalization to enforcement and prosecution. In the 2008 presidential election campaign, Barack Obama ran on an anti-trade platform. And when he assumed office, he really did nothing to advance the three pending bilateral agreements. However, in 2010, after taking what he called a shellacking in the midterm elections and Republicans took control of the Congress, President Obama decided maybe now is the time to work with the Republicans in Congress to advance these pending bilaterals. And indeed, by the end of 2011, uh, the three bilaterals with uh, Colombia, Korea, and Panama uh, were enacted. During this period, the Obama administration announced its pivot to Asia. The economic centerpiece of that pivot is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a negotiation between the United States and 11 other countries on four continents. The TPP has generated a lot of controversy in the United States, but much of the opposition is based on hearsay because the text of the agreement has yet to be released. But the public and Congress will have plenty of time to scrutinize the text of the TPP. Under law, the president can't even sign the TPP until the public has had access to its text for at least 90 days. TPP is not Adam Smith's view of free trade. TPP is managed trade. And certainly the TPP will include components that we don't like. But on net, if the agreement is good for taxpayers, it's good for consumers, workers, businesses, I think we're going to find a way to support it. The bottom line is, let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Thanks. That's pretty awkward to be sitting here with um, <laughs> myself doing the narrative there. I, I didn't realize how odd that was going to feel. Anyway, that's 150 years of trade policy history in uh, three minutes and 50 seconds. So if you're tired, okay, I get that. Um, the one objection I had to this video, uh, which was done by our excellent um, web team, our, our production team at Cato, was that I didn't like the Muzak in the background. And so they made a, another version with ACDC and uh, <laughs> flying dragons with M16s shooting things up and explosions. That was, that was excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, so really, the point of that was just to put the TPP in perspective. Um, and the, what, I, what I want you to understand, if you don't already, that most, since the end of the Second World War, or most, for most of the period since then, there was a bipartisan consensus in favor of trade liberalization. And most trade liberalization happened under the auspices of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Um, the last successful round, uh, the Uruguay round, which was concluded in 1994, produced the, the World Trade Organization in 1995. Uh, and there were aborted efforts uh, to try to launch a round between 1995 and 2001, um, a, a new multilateral round. Uh, and, and then finally, 
in November of 2001 after the 9-11 attacks, there, you know, there was some sense that we needed to do something to create a, a, a more productive economic environment uh, to deter uh, the appeal of terrorism, uh, whatever it may have been. Um, the Doha round was launched and, uh, and President Bush pursued and obtained trade promotion authority from the Congress in 2002. Uh, but Doha really never got on track. And uh, the, the ministerial meeting in Cancun in 2003, there was uh, the, the negotiators were at loggerheads, and and uh, Bob Zelik, who was the USTR at the time, decided to pursue this policy of competitive liberalization, going forward with bilateral agreements with countries uh, that that wanted to move forward. At that time, we, the, we, the United States had trade agreements with only four other countries, um, and by the end of the Bush administration, we had negotiated bilaterals with with 20 countries. So, and, and support for those agreements tended to come from Republicans and opposition from Democrats, and it was, it was pretty partisan. That whole period was very partisan. Um, and it it's, it's, has sort of re remained that way uh, going forward. Um, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership was first, uh, the U.S. first expressed interest in that in something called the P4, which was an, an agreement between uh, New Zealand, Singapore, Chile and Brunei, I believe, Brunei. Uh, at the end of the Bush administration, Susan Schwab expressed interest in it, and, and, and then when Barack Obama came into office, uh, that the idea was embraced and, and trade negotiations were pursued. And so I want you to think of the TPP in the context of um, filling the gap that, uh, that was left from an aborted WTO round. All right, there's a, there's a bigger, uh, bigger picture here. Uh, the United States characterized uh, TPP sort of it, as, as sort of the economic centerpiece of its pivot to Asia. And it had a geopolitical and foreign policy dimension to it, which I wish didn't have to be played so frequently, but it seems like it, it does. It was an agreement that doesn't include China. Uh, it's, we're going to beat China to writing the rules of trade. Um, very rarely did I hear from the president, uh, you know, any real affirmative reasons for entering into trade agreements or why trade is good. Uh, it was more of a defensive reason to do this before China. Um, but uh, so the, the, those negotiations um, finally produced uh, an agreement uh, earlier this month. We haven't seen the text of it yet, uh, and you know, we're, we're not sure um, what we think of it because we <laughs> we haven't we haven't read it. Um, not, trade agreements aren't all the same. There's a lot of liberalization, I assume, that will be uh, contained in this agreement. Greater market access of, uh, of uh, foreign companies to the, to the U.S. market and vice versa. We're still looking for where that market access in the U.S. is coming from. I, I'm not, not so sure uh, that it's, it's, it's all that substantial at the moment. But there's also baked-in protectionism in these agreements. We have... Uh, an, you know, there's a 2.5% tariff on automobiles, and there's a 25% tariff on light pickup trucks. Well, we're going to liberalize that 2.5% tariff on automobiles starting in 15 years. Uh, we're going to, 0.8% of it is going to come off in 15 years, uh, and then the rest in, in two more tranches. The, the, the truck tariff, the 25% light truck tariff, that will come off. Uh, so if, if, if the agreement goes into effect in, say, 2018, in 2048, you'll be able to buy pickup trucks without having to worry about that 25% tariff. So to me, that's not liberalization. That's, that's baked-in protectionism, as is 
rules of origin. You know, we say that we, oh, we're open to apparel from Vietnam, huge exporter of apparel. Well, Vietnam can only qualify for the duty, the preferential duty rates if it avails itself of textiles made in the region. Uh, something called a yarn forward rule of origin, which the textile industry has insisted be in our trade agreements for a long time, um, requires uh, that U.S. components, well, I, I, I mean, I say U.S., uh, but in the, in the context of TPP, it's any country that has a textile industry, and that would be the United States, to a lesser extent, Canada, Mexico, Japan. Uh, not a lot of countries have textile industries. Everybody has apparel. Uh, that's pretty easy, low-tech kind of stuff to do. Um, but that, to me, is baked in protectionism. Um, likewise, we were concerned about the rules, uh, the uh, intellectual property provisions. Um, I'm not sure that it looks like the United States was pursuing 12 years of protections for uh, uh, biologics data, which is needed to demonstrate uh, the efficacy uh, and safety of your products. Uh, but it looks like it only got five years. So that's not as monopolistic. Um, uh, in copyright, we're not sure whether the balance still exists. Uh, the, the, the balance that's struck under domestic law between you know, the public interest and, and copyright holders. Um, the investor state dispute settlement system is also something that we have concerns about. Um, this is the um, institution through which foreign invested companies can uh, bring suits against governments for, to file claims for policies, laws, regulations that are discriminatory and have an adverse impact on the value of their holdings. Um, Simon and I have written a lot about, about ISDS. I think it doesn't belong in trade agreements. Um, so, I mean, that said, I've said a lot of negative things <laughs> about the TPP, um, but clearly there's going to be liberalization here. I haven't seen where, where that is. There's 30 chapters in this agreement. We intend to evaluate each chapter uh, and give it a grade from, you know, protectionist to free trade or something like that uh, and to, to, to give a really objective assessment of whether or not uh, this makes sense from an economic perspective. Now, one thing I don't think that would be in that, but it's also something to think about uh, on the benefit side of the TPP, is that the TPP is having this demonstration effect around the world. Um, it, it, it has been reputed to be this high standards 21st century agreement uh, that only certain countries would really be able to qualify for. Um, I don't know that it's going to live up to those standards, to the rigors of those standards. Um, but certainly, it will probably be the most advanced of our, of our trade agreements ever. Um, but what this has done is it's caused countries like China and India and Taiwan and the Philippines and Indonesia and Thailand to engage in unilateral reforms, to get themselves ready to, to join this kind of agreement. And to me, that's, that's a good benefit to have. They're, they are making their economies ready, making their economies more attractive to investment to be part of a global supply chain. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a benefit of the TPP that we should tout. Um, the TPP obviously is, I mentioned the geopolitical dimension. I, I suspect that that is going to be the most compelling argument put forward uh, at the end of the day. Um, President Obama is going to come up here and <coughs> remind people that this is about this is an agreement that doesn't include China. Americans are fairly receptive to trade liberalization, but when you talk about trade with China, the, uh, the, the positive feelings tend to, to, tend to uh, evaporate. 
Um, but he's probably going to come up here and talk about uh, the fact that this does not include China, uh, and it helps reassert U.S. interest in the region, U.S. hegemony in, in Asia, in the Asia-Pacific. Um, that's what George Bush did to get CAFTA done. He came up here the night uh, before the CAFTA vote in 2005 and said this, this agreement is about Hugo Chavez on the march in Venezuela, about Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. That sells. Sells up here, sells with the public. Um, but I, I want you all to keep in mind that this agreement is not worth all that much economically if China is on the outside. Uh, China is central to all of Asia's supply chains. Uh, and so we need to find a way to bring China into the fold. Um, and I think um, that, that's, that's likely going to happen. It might not be called the TPP. It might be called the Free Trade Area of the Asia-Pacific by then. Uh, but um, this needs to be thought of, the TPP needs to be thought of as um, a way to, um, to um, inspire multilateral liberalization again. It's better if all countries are subject to the same rules, same tariffs, um, the same rules of origin, the same standards, it, and that's what. If you, the purpose of trade is to is to facilitate specialization, and we can each produce more when we specialize, and we can trade our surpluses, and and to have uh, one market where where this is happening, we have to get rid of trade barriers, tariffs, which we've done for the most part, and then we have to do something about the rules, the disparate rules between producers operating in each jurisdiction. If they're harmonized, then you have one one large market. So uh, there's concern that you know harmonizing rules, harmonizing standards is uh, constitutes a race to the bottom. That's what the Europeans think about in the TTIP, but they think that U.S. multinationals are, are going to take uh, what they mean by standards harmonization is uh, or regulatory harmonization is this race to the bottom where we don't abide environmental or, or uh, labor or product safety standards. The American right and libertarians think this, this means uh, uh, gravitating toward these onerous, uh, economy-stifling, European-style regulations. But I think that there's, there's room in between there where we don't have to worry about sovereignty, ceding sovereignty, uh, outsourcing these kinds of decisions. Um, let me just say one more thing, and then I will give it forward to, to Simon. Um, the uh, The... The politics here, uh, so I'm going to talk more about that. Um, I, I, I don't really know what the state of play is. I've seen heard a lot of complaints from Republicans, uh, you know, from Warren Hatch in particular about uh, the, uh, the investment provisions. Um, there is this tobacco carve out in the agreement, which seems to Simon will get into the details of what that entails, but. Um, endorses discrimination against a particular industry in the agreement and sets a very bad precedent in my mind. And politically, I just don't know how the administration can bring back a deal that has that in it, knowing that the Senate majority leader is from a tobacco state. Uh, so I, I, some deal may have been worked out, or I, I, I don't know. So I, I think that there, there are a lot of political calculations to be made. Um, it's very hard to predict, I think, you know, what's going to happen this year. There's not a lot of time. The 90-day the, the ticker hasn't started yet. You know, the president can't sign the TPP until, um, until he's notified Congress and the public has had access to the text for 90 days. 
So officially, the TPP isn't done. Uh, so if, if it were done on November 1st, the earliest he could sign it would be February 1st. And we have 105 days for the US International Trade Commission to um, evaluate the impact, the likely impact of this agreement on the US economy. 60 days for the administration to produce a report um, identifying all of the US laws that are going to be affected by, by the TPP. Then there's debate. There's mock markup. There's uh, you know, introduction of the implementing legislation. And then Congress has 90 days. So if this is going to be done on, in this Congress and on this president's watch, it's going to happen you know, on the eve of the general election, in my opinion. A lot of people are saying early 2016. I, I just don't see how that's possible. Um, so let me stop there and uh, turn it over to, uh, to Simon and be happy to answer questions later. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, as Dan mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the politics of the TPP. I'm, I'm a little wary because I'm in a room full of people who I think probably most of you know more about politics than I do. Um, so I, I won't be offended if after, the, after this talk uh, you tell me how I misunderstood everything. Uh, I'm here to learn. Um, I'm going to talk about two aspects of politics. I'm going to talk about the big picture of the Obama administration's attempt to, to market the TPP to, to Congress and to the people in general to the American people. And then I'm going to focus on some obscure details of the TPP uh, and their potentially big impact on, on the politics here. So let me start with the big picture. Uh, Dan just gave a, a nice uh, three minute, 50 second history uh, of, of, of trade, trade policy and trade agreements. I'm just going to go a, a little bit back on that. Until about 30 years ago, trade politics was fairly simple. Um, it was sometimes a bit contentious, but it used to be contentious on much narrower grounds than it is today. Trade agreements in this earlier period were mostly about lowering tariffs. Um, so you had import competing industries facing off against export industries. Um, and you, so unions and companies in the, import in, in the import competing sector were opposed to trade agreements. And here I think of textiles and agriculture. Whereas uh, competitive companies who wanted to conquer export markets were in favor of trade agreements. And politicians lined up with the industries uh, in their state. So tra the trade politics was this classic battle between free traders and protectionists. I'm, over, I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but you know, this, this is the general picture I think is accurate. But then in the past 30 years, uh, something, uh, the, the situation evolved considerably. And trade agreements expanded in scope. Um, it's not just about trade liberalization anymore. It, it's a lot more complex. We have uh, rules on labor. We have rules on the environment. We have rules on intellectual property. And some general rules that you know, sort of are cross-cutting. And uh, you know, I don't want to go too much into investor state dispute settlement, but we have these sort of broad obligations that let foreign investors sue for a wide range of things. So just about any domestic law or regulation is subject to challenge. So the result is that the implementing legislation for, for trade agreements looks a lot like your normal domestic policy legislation. Um, there's a lot of provisions that are added at the request of a, a wide range of interest groups. And what that means is assembling a package of provisions that can pass Congress uh, is much more difficult than what we used to see with trade agreements. So we still have in, in the trade debate that traditional free trade versus protectionism clash, but we also have so much more. Um, so, you know, the Obama administration sort of knows all that, and you know, taking that into account, um, 
you know, they had to figure out how, how are we going to sell trade agreements to Congress and to the American people. And as I see it, they've taken kind of a, a three-pronged approach to that. First, they want to, to keep the, the traditional free market, free trade uh, conservatives, uh, or some liberals too, on board with this, um, with enough of the traditional trade liberalization. As Dan said, you know, you know, we may not be happy with how much is in there, but we hope there's some, and we're eagerly awaiting the details so we can evaluate just how much is in there. Uh, so that's the first problem. The second is to bring in some liberals uh, with some things that liberals like. I'll, I'll talk more about that. And then third is to add a security component. Dan alluded to this too. Um, the sort of there's all this talk about China uh, to to get some security hawks on board with this as well. So I'm going to talk briefly about each one, and then I'm going to go into greater detail about uh, two particular examples of the, the second one, which is getting some liberals on board here. So first up is the, this free market pitch for the TPP. So traditionally, if you're a, a free market supporter, as I am, you might talk about how trade agreements uh, reduce tariffs or, or customs duties. These are sort of the common terms, um, how they uh, make us better off by lowering import prices. What the Obama administration has done, and I feel like this is a bit novel, I don't know, Dan, maybe you've seen it before, they, they want to characterize um, the, the tariff reductions as tax cuts. And so there's this talk of how there's going to be 18,000 tax cuts on sales of, of US products abroad. Um, what is this? Is this sort of blatant pandering to folks like Dan and me, uh, a clever strategy to get free market conservatives excited about all of this? Um, I think it's actually a good way to emphasize to conservatives the, the free market part of the TPP. And I, I've probably done the same thing myself at some point, referring to, to lowering tariffs as, as tax cuts. Um, it does, I admit, make me roll my eyes a little bit when I hear people who don't usually say much about tax cuts talk about tax cuts. But overall, I, I think it's actually, it's actually a good idea. And I think it, it could play well. Um, so that's the, sort of the free market side of things. So now this, the second part. Um, the Obama administration knows it's not enough to get the free market conservatives on board. They need to appeal to the left as, as well. So they've suggested that past trade agreements are problematic. Uh, this one, the TPP, is new and improved. They are calling it the most progressive trade agreement in history. Uh, it spreads US values such as labor protections and environmental protection. The question I have about this is anyone on the left who was opposed to trade agreements going to shift their, response, shift their position in response to this? And I'm a little skeptical, but we'll see. Um, now, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about two specific examples of, of, what they, of, of issues that, uh, that they've played up. Uh, one is the minimum wage, and the other is, as Dan mentioned, this sort of uh, this un unfavorable treatment of tobacco. OK, so the third part of the Obama administration's approach is the appeal to patriotism and security, in particular by playing up the fear of China. As Dan said, this is part of the, 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 part of the pivot to Asia in foreign policy. Um, and they, they've made clear many times that this is about, it's important for America to write the rules on global trade and not let China write the rules. So to me, this seems like part of a larger strategy to build up a, a rival that we need to be worried about. Um, and in this way, sort of to create a security component for the TPP. So will this three-pronged strategy work? Does the Obama administration have the balance right? Can they, can they bring in new supporters without alienating? Um, can they bring in new supporters without creating new opponents? In particular, can they bring in some liberals without alienating conservatives? Because of the expansion of trade agreements, it's gotten very hard to balance out all of the competing groups out there. <clears throat> so to take one example, Dan mentioned this one too. 
Uh, one big battle in the TPP has been over the, the protection, intellectual property protection, uh, in particular for this, these biologic drugs. So on the one side, you have public health groups who want less protection. And then on the, on the other, you have the pharmaceutical companies and their supporters in Congress who want more protection. And the general verdict has been that, and you know, as we've talked about, we haven't seen the TPP text yet, but from what we've heard about, the general verdict has, is that the, the result in the TPP was more favorable to the public health groups than maybe they even expected. But that means the pharmaceutical industry didn't get what they wanted, um, so you have people like Senator Orrin Hatch who are, who are not happy with the result. So the question is, did the Obama administration get the balance right on this issue and a variety of other issues? Um, so uh, just to conclude on this big picture, I mean, having broadened the agreements in, in, the, in the way in, into d various aspects of social policy, um, it's just it's very hard to get this right balance. And the TPP is kind of a test of, of whether we have it right or whether there are adjustments that still need to be made. So that's kind of a general, some, some general thoughts on this. But now let me get into some very specific points to kind of illustrate um, the, the difficulty of all this. The first one is the minimum wage. Um, and, and the minimum wage is part of sort of the, the larger labor protections that are in trade agreements. And the labor protections first became part of trade agreements in the NAFTA in 1993 in kind of non-binding form. There was a commission set up to study these issues, uh, but it really didn't have much impact. By the 2000s, labor protections were in, enforceable and real. Uh, we actually have a, some litigation going on right now in the CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, where the United States is alleging that Guatemala's labor protect, Guatemala's not properly enforcing its labor laws. We should actually have a, a panel report soon telling us whether uh, Guatemala is doing enough. Um, so currently, we, we have, generally speaking, binding and enforceable labor protections. Um, so far, though, we haven't really had much on, on the minimum wage. But people are, are talking as if there will be something more in the TPP about the minimum wage. So you know, past trade deals might have said that uh, if you have a minimum wage law on the books, you have to enforce it. But for a while, the Obama administration has been talking as if there's going to be something more in the TPP and suggesting that maybe there's actually going to, going to be a requirement that every country who's part of the TPP adopt a minimum wage law. I've talked about this with, with various conservatives who, who, who you know, are connected and, and, and know things about what's going on in politics. And, and they have suggested, well, there's no way this, this could happen. This would be unacceptable. Um, but nevertheless, if you read the, the, sort of the, 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 the reports of what might be in the TPP, um, the Obama administration is still, I think, pushing the idea that there's going to be something more, something new here, you know, some kind of requirement for at least some countries maybe to adopt a minimum wage law. So, if that's true, that, that's, that's a very big new development. Um, and it raises some questions for me. So first, one is, could you adopt a minimum wage law that says the minimum wage is one cent per, has to be at least one cent per hour, making it just sort of formalistic and meaningless? In theory, you could do that. Um, would anyone actually do this? I, I don't know. It seems absurd to, to, you know, to have this approach, but technically, maybe this is possible. Practical question, does any TPP country not have a minimum wage law? Uh, it, from what, I, what I've seen so far, Brunei and Singapore are the ones that, that do not. So they would be the ones affected by this. If this applied to all the countries, they would then have to adopt a minimum wage law. Here in the United States, obviously, we already have a minimum wage law. But does having this requirement in the TPP mean we could never repeal it? Um, there are people out there who would probably like to repeal it, repeal it. Not that it's politically realistic, but it would be frustrating for them not to even have that opportunity. So there's lots of unanswered questions and about the minimum wage and what the TPP will do with it. Um, but back to the topic for the day, US politics. 
what are the implications of the TPP having some sort of requirement for all of these countries to adopt minimum wage? My sense sometimes reading about this is there are some people on the left who, who don't really understand how important an issue this is for, for free, market, uh, free market folks. They might see this as more conservatives just being pro-corporate or, or being mean. Um, but for free market people, it's actually you know, it's very important in, in two ways. One, it's just you know, sort of generally the concept of economic liberty, being able to sign the contracts that you want, but also the fact that much of the economic research shows that minimum wage laws mean lost jobs. So the key political question here is, will Republicans object to the expansion of the labor chapter to include a requirement for adopting the minimum wage. So I'm gonna, this is one of the many questions I'm gonna ask that I won't be able to answer, um, but I'm putting it out there as a question and if people in the audience have thoughts on it, I'd be happy to hear it. Second issue I wanna talk about in just a couple more minutes and I'll wrap it up and we'll take some questions. Uh, second issue is tobacco. Dan, Dan mentioned this one. There's a long history uh, of, controversy, of controversy with the treatment of tobacco in trade agreements. There was perhaps some bad judgment by, by governments many years ago by the US government in, in trade negotiations and litigation related to tobacco. Um, so in the late 1980s and 1990s, the, the US government was pushing for lowering tobacco tariffs, and they were pushing for removing protectionism in tobacco regulations. But beyond that, it seemed sometimes that they were actually pushing against public health measures, more general anti-smoking measures. And the government worked closely with the tobacco industry in this litigation and negotiation. Well, public health groups got very upset by this. And they began calling for a general carve-out of tobacco from trade agreements. They wanted no attacks on regulations, uh, no reductions in tariffs of any sort. They just wanted tobacco explicitly excluded. Uh, and they seemed to believe that the core problem here was the behavior of Western companies and that it would be better if uh, you know, developing countries were able to have state-owned uh, state monopolies. Um, and somehow this would be better for public health. But in my view, cooler heads prevailed on, the, on this, and we got to a middle ground where the US government would push for uh, reduction of tariffs and removal of discriminatory measures. But if something was a legitimate public health measure, that would be OK. Uh, that seemed like a reasonable compromise. But then along came these rules on investor protection that, that Dan mentioned. Um, so it's a set of rules that allow foreign investors to sue host governments in an international tribunal for certain kinds of, of bad treatment they receive. Uh, commonly known as Investor State Dispute, Dispute Settlement, ISDS. This is something Senator Elizabeth Warren has been uh, you know, vocally complaining about uh, recently. And in our opinion, as Dan mentioned, I mean, we don't think this is necessary. It's not an important part of these agreements, but, but it's in there. Uh, business groups like it. It's hard to get rid of it, just like the Exim Bank. Um, so there have been hundreds of these ISDS lawsuits, and two of them brought by tobacco companies against public health measures. But in reaction to those two cases, um, they, people have argued that we need to, to exclude tobacco from these provisions. And the response, apparently, from what we've heard about the TP, is there will be some kind of carve out of tobacco from the ISDS provisions. To me, this approach makes no sense. It's, it's sort of acknowledging that there's a fundamental flaw in ISDS, but then it's decide, you know, explicitly deciding not to solve it. We're just going to take tobacco out, but we're going to leave the rest of the problem there. Um, but anyway, that's what they've done, apparently. So what's the big deal with the tobacco carve-out in terms of politics? I think Dan alluded to both of these points. First is that it sets a precedent by discriminating against a particular product. I mean, it's not something you, you normally see in, in trade agreements, and it's sort of a slippery slope. I mean, what happens if we go down this road? You know, what comes next? Uh, soda, uh, as we've heard recently, bacon. You, know, you, you can imagine all these other carve-outs that you would have. Um, perhaps more important, though, is that there are particular members of Congress, Senator Mitch McConnell, 
other tobacco state, state members who will really dislike the idea of tobacco you know, being targeted this way. And the question is, will they hate this provision, provision so much that they will withhold support for TPP as is and maybe wait for an opportunity to, uh, to, to revise, to uh, reopen it and, and you know, you might like everything else about TPP, but just not this part of it. So can, is there a way to get the TPP but without this provision? So I've raised lots of questions. I don't think I've answered many of them. So at this point, I think maybe uh, we'll wrap it up and, and leave it to you to ask your own questions or help answer some of the questions that, I, that I've raised. 